Welcome back, everyone. I am pleased to introduce Dr. Donald Chi. Dr. Chi is a professor and the Lloyd and K. Chapman Endowed Chair of Oral Health at the University of Washington School of Dentistry in Seattle, Washington, and serves as Associate Chair for Research in the Department of Health Systems and Population Health in the School of Public Health. He's dual board certified in pediatric dentistry and dental public health. Dr. Chi's research focuses on understanding and addressing oral health inequities. He teaches public health to dental students and pediatric dentistry residents and has been a staff pediatric dentist at the Odessa Brown Children's Clinic in Seattle since 2009. A warm welcome to Dr. Chi who will present oral health considerations for individuals with CF. Welcome Dr. Chi. Great, thank you so much, Jim, and thank you for, uh, for the Institute for, uh, for uh, inviting me to speak today about oral health. So four objectives today that I'd like to, uh, to achieve. Uh, first, I'd like to review what's known about oral health um, of individuals with cystic fibrosis. Um, I'd like to outline the factors uh, that are known to lead to poor oral health, uh, specifically in CF. Um, I also want to give you uh, all a sneak peek uh, or a preview of, uh, of the CF dental research that's happening at the University of Washington in Seattle. Uh, and then lastly, uh, I, I want to provide some clinical tips on optimizing oral health over the CF life course. So first, I want to start off with my story about how I ended up uh, in the CF world. Um, this actually started probably about 10 years ago. And I happened to be waiting uh, for a, a medical visit. Um, I, I actually don't have, uh, before this, I, I had no ties to cystic fibrosis. Um, I don't have any family members with cystic fibrosis. Um, this was just a serendipitous uh, discovery or, or kind of occurrence that, that happened while I was waiting um, for, uh, for a checkup. And while I was waiting for, uh, for my physician to, uh, to, to call me in, I happened to pick up a pulmonary journal uh, that happened to be laying around. And so I flipped it open and, and, and actually landed on a, on a CF-related article. And, uh, and as I was reading it, this had nothing to do with oral health. Um, as I was reading the article, uh, I started thinking back to my dental training, uh, both during dental school and during residency training uh, when I was learning to become a pediatric dentist, about what I had learned about cystic fibrosis. And the one thing that stuck in my mind, and this was consistent across the, the two uh, training periods of my life, the thing that stuck out was, well, you know, we learned that uh, people with CF don't get cavities. And, uh, and they don't get cavities because of antibiotics. And, and, and that was it. So I was like, huh, that's really interesting. So I was like, you know, it, it's been a while since I've, I've been in the classroom. Let's go to the literature to see uh, if this still is the case. And so after my appointment, uh, I went to my office and, uh, and looked up uh, a few articles to, to see if this actually was, uh, was the case. So most of today is going to focus on, uh, on what we know about children with cystic fibrosis, um, uh, given my clinical interest in children um, and teens. Um, and, and so I'm going to share a little what I know about the literature in this area. So, uh, you know, so consistent with, with what I had learned, um, you know, most studies out there uh, continue to, um, uh, to perpetuate the idea that individuals with CF just have good oral health, that cavities weren't a problem, that really that, that you know, that they have a, a pretty clean bill of health. Um, and this, despite the fact that the profile of children with CF uh, would fit the profile of someone who, who actually would be high risk for cavities, uh, we know that individuals with CF are on high calorie diets. And if those high calorie diets contain uh, high amounts or large volumes of carbohydrates or sugars, um, that that's a source uh, of, um, of nutrients for the intraoral bacteria that metabolize those sugars uh, and then spit out acids. And it's those acids in the mouth that, that create holes in the teeth that we know um, are, are known as cavities. Uh, we also know that medications that individuals with CF may take uh, could lead to dry mouth. On top of this, uh, we know that there are uh, you know, problems with reflux, which introduces uh, stomach acids into the mouth. So not only do we have the bacteria producing acids, but we have uh, extrinsic acids being introduced into the mouth. Uh, more recent studies at the time, now they're you know, over 10 years old, uh, had shown that individuals with CF, or actually this was a, a, a mouse model, that, uh, that mice with CF um, had 20 times the level of intraoral streptococcus mutans, which is the main bacteria implicated in tooth decay. 
And then on top of this, uh, there were structural defects that individuals with CF were known to be at higher risk for. Enamel defects um, are one of these. And enamel defects, enamel is the outer coating, uh, or I'm sorry, the outer um, part of the tooth. Um, it's the hardest structure in the body, but individuals with CF are known to be born with uh, a predisposition to defects in the enamel that then um, uh, make it so that uh, the sugars and bacteria can stick to the teeth uh, more easily and, and lead to, to tooth decay. So despite this profile, uh, studies uh, continue to, to perpetuate this idea that individuals with CF were at low risk. Now, now this is where things started to, um, to break down for me and I, I, I started to get very suspicious. Um, and, and this was where um, the explanation used or the explanation presented uh, was simply that individuals with CF were on chronic antibiotics and that was the explanation. And really that's where I started to dig. Um, and, and this chronic um, exposure to antibiotics uh, wasn't something that most of these studies had actually studied empirically. Uh, these were hypotheses uh, presented usually in the discussion sections of the papers. And so there actually wasn't any um, strong support for this explanation that antibiotics was in fact the reason why individuals with CF were at lower risk for tooth decay. So this got me thinking, okay, if, if the explanation is weak or, or that there's not support for this widely accepted explanation for, for this paradigm, maybe it's time to actually question the paradigm. And that's exactly what I did. So I did a systematic review of all the studies uh, looking at tooth decay in both children and teens with cystic fibrosis. And what I found through this qualitative systematic review, in fact, um, was that children, so younger children with CF, uh, tended to have fewer cavities than, um, than individuals without CF, so uh, non-CF controls. But what seemed to happen over time, uh, particularly during early adolescence, is that they, they would lose this protection. So what was happening is that, that younger children with CF uh, tended to, to have lower cavities uh, or lower rates of cavities than controls, uh, but that this uh, tended to come to parity as, um, as, as these individuals uh, got older. Now, this uh, led to um, a pilot study that we conducted here at Seattle Children's Hospital. Um, and this, uh, at the time, uh, so we, we enrolled 85 children and teens uh, and young adults, 6 to 20. Uh, and at the time, this was actually, and actually probably still is the case, this is the largest prospective uh, study of CF and oral health uh, done since the 1980s in the U.S. Um, and, and there have been a, a, a few studies outside the U.S., but, but again, to, to show you that not a lot um, of research has been, has been done in this area. And in fact, what we found uh, confirmed the findings from the systematic review that kids between the ages of six and nine with CF had significantly fewer cavities than controls. And where we see this here on the graph is this divide between the blue line and the red line that happens early on between six and nine. And then what happens is that between the ages of 10 and 20, these lines start to match, the red and the blue lines start to match, which means that, that cavity rates actually uh, uh, tend to uh, tend to be uh, not different. Now, what we can see here at the very, very end here at, at, at age 19 and 20, and this is really, I think, what helped to motivate um, the larger study that I'm going to present today, is that you can see that the lines are starting to separate. Again, you can see there's a little, sorry, and I should have, uh, have, I should have had a bigger image here, uh, but you can see here that the blue lines and the, uh, the blue line and the red line um, start to diverge again. Uh, and, and what this shows is that the uh, um, that, the, that the cavity rates actually start to um, separate again. So we don't know what happens after age 20, but this pilot study helped to confirm some of the, um, some of the findings that we found from the literature. What we also found based on this uh, uh, literature is that acidic uh, saliva pH uh, is a potentially important risk factor for cavities. So we collected both stimulated and unstimulated saliva from these individuals with CF. And, uh, and the, we found that, uh, that acidic saliva is a, is a risk factor. Uh, what we also found uh, based on a different data set is, um, is inequities based on income. And so lower income children with CF, so these would be children who are enrolled in, uh, in Medicaid, uh, they were less likely to utilize dental care um, than individuals without CF. Um, and so, uh, so there appeared to be uh, maybe some access to care problems uh, for our lower income children with cystic fibrosis.
So here we have, you know, we did a systematic review. Uh, we did the pilot study with the 85 individuals with CF. Uh, we did some ancillary studies, and then we also looked at Medicaid data. So what this gives us is it, it this starts to paint a picture of, of what the risk factors uh, for cavities might be uh, for individuals with, with CF. Now, again, what we found is, is that there is a salivary component and, uh, and a bacterial component. So there's something about the saliva uh, being more highly acidic um, and, and there being more bacteria in the mouth um, that, that is contributing to cavities. Um, there also are, uh, are more CF-specific risk factors. So we know that having a lower FEV1 uh, using bronchodilators and then GERD uh, were also independently associated with, um, with tooth decay risk in CF. So these are, are, are typically not risk factors that we see in a general population, but these are more CF-specific risk factors. And then we have this third category of, uh, of risk factors, so not getting dental care, um, if you do get dental care, not actually getting fluoride during your dental visits, and fluoride typically now is, um, is the really sticky stuff that dentists or a hygienist may paint on to the teeth that, that add that uh, extra uh, protection uh, against cavities. Uh, and then not surprisingly, soda intake as well as sugar-sweetened beverages. So here we have, uh, we're starting to, to put together a model here um, where there are some factors that, that are not specific to CF. So some of these bacterially mediated disease factors, such as the salivary pH, as, the, as well as the streptococcus mutant levels. Uh, we know that those are risk factors for all of us when it comes to cavities, uh, as well as these green oral health behaviors. Um, these are also implicated in cavities for all of us. Uh, but, but we also, on top of that, have these risk factors uh, specifically related to CF. So we can see here that we start to, we're starting to, to develop a model uh, for tooth decay in individuals with CF that is gonna be really important in not just understanding the pathogenesis of tooth decay in individuals with CF, but more importantly, where is it that we can intervene to actually prevent tooth decay? So what's going on at the UW? Um, so, um, so this pilot study, after uh, multiple attempts, uh, we were able to secure a five-year NIH grant to, uh, to study um, these issues. Uh, and this is the first uh, CF oral health study funded by the NIH. Uh, again, it's the um, largest US dental study uh, since actually our study was published uh, just a few years ago. And our plan for this study, uh, we started enrollment in March, um, just a few months ago. And our goal is to enroll 210 individuals with CF uh, between the ages of 10 and 30. And this is a multi-center study. And so we have a, a large group of, of collaborators and partners um, here at the University of Washington in Seattle Children's Hospital. Uh, Margaret Rosenfeld is, uh, is a multiple PI. Um, on this grant. Um, we also have uh, the CF and the dental team at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Um, and, uh, and then we're also working with, uh, with our colleagues at the University of uh, Alabama, Birmingham. So multi-site um, study, uh, complex. I think the study itself is actually pretty straightforward, but when it comes to multi-center studies, um, you know, these can get pretty complex in terms of ensuring that, uh, that the protocols we use, that the methods we use are identical across all the sites. We have three aims with this NIH study. So the first is actually related directly to our pilot work. And this really is, uh, is aimed at trying to identify the modifiable or, or risk factors that can be changed uh, when it comes to cavities and gingivitis. And so part of the, the risk factor assessment is that we're doing longitudinal surveys. So over the course of the five years, um, the 210 individuals that will enroll at baseline, our goal is to actually have, um, have them back three times total. So we'll be able to do some longitudinal surveys, and that's just enough time to see changes in tooth decay. Tooth decay takes about six to nine months to appear. So you can have a patient who comes in or an individual that comes in with no tooth decay, and let's say those risk factors are really high, anywhere from six to nine months is when you can start to see um, tooth decay in the mouth. So, uh, so given the study design, this should allow us with these longitudinal surveys and, and increments or increases in tooth decay that we expect to see in some individuals, uh, we should actually be able to identify risk factors uh, longitudinally through our surveys 
And we also uh, would like to do, we're also planning to do interviews to identify strategies to improve behaviors. So let's say, you know, we know that sugar-sweetened beverages are problematic. You know, that's kind of one level of knowledge. Uh, but the second level of knowledge is, okay, so how do we actually change this? You know, if an individual is consuming you know, six sodas a day, and, and our goal is to get them to maybe consume two sodas a day, how is it that we get that um, change? And, and part of this is, is um, information we hope to glean from uh, the qualitative portion of our first aim. The second aim is to actually look at links between dental diseases and pulmonary health. So it's this idea that what happens in the mouth uh, likely affects what happens in the lungs. And, and surprisingly, there, there's not a whole lot of work out there in CF as well as non-CF uh, uh, linking dental diseases and pulmonary health. I think this is an example where, you know, in dentistry, we talk about these oral systemic links a lot. Um, and, and there's not necessarily a lot of empirical evidence um, of a causal link. Um, and so we're, we're going to try to hopefully get a little closer to understanding, okay, what happens in the mouth? Does it affect uh, pulmonary health in individuals with CF? And then the third aim is, if it does, uh, what are the mechanisms that link dental disease and respiratory disease? And our hypothesis uh, in the third aim is to, uh, is to conduct oral and lung microbiome analyses. So we'll be collecting a whole bunch of different samples, uh, saliva, um, supergingival plaque, subgingival plaque, uh, as well as sputum samples uh, to try to understand the microbiological links. And as you can imagine, this is, um, this is a, again, an important area uh, when it comes not just to the basic science understanding of, of what is it that links the mouth and the lungs, but again, when it comes to disease prevention and trying to uh, help individuals with, uh, with CF have better respiratory health, perhaps one way to do that is to actually influence what's happening in the mouth. So I'm going to transition a little bit to, uh, to uh, the adult world now. And this is really, I think, um, one of the exciting offshoots of the work that we've been doing, uh, mostly with children as well as young adults, is, uh, is uh, adults with CF. And, and we know that the same problems that children have and teens have uh, follow us into adulthood. So, uh, so we did one study with, with actually our transplant colleagues uh, here at the University of Washington uh, to look at lung transplant time. And this is a study that was led by uh, one of my PhD students, Ala Al-Khatib. And, um, and what she found is, uh, is looking at uh, waitlist times for, uh, for lung transplant as well as dental disease rates. Uh, there was no difference between individuals with CF uh, compared to other adults with other types of respiratory conditions, COPD, um, end-stage, uh, you know, uh, lung disease, other types of respiratory non-CF diseases. Uh, and what this study actually, I think the importance of this study um, is that again, back to that paradigm that I talked about at the very beginning, that individuals with CF don't get dental disease. If that in fact was the case, you know, we probably would have seen some sort of difference in, term of, in terms of dental disease rates, uh, in terms of the adults with CF that we looked at as well as, uh, or compared to those without CF. But more importantly, this idea of pulmonary waitlist time is this idea that if an individual with CF, if, if they come in and they don't have a whole lot of dental disease or no dental disease, their waitlist time actually should be shorter, right? You know, this idea that they don't have to go in and get all of their dental work done. And anecdotally, this is something that, uh, that we hear a lot about in, in clinical scenarios where an individual with CF, they're all ready to get their lung transplant. And then they have to go get a whole bunch of dental work done uh, before they can get their lung transplant. But the, again, the fact that we didn't find any difference in waitlist time or dental disease, again, leads me to think that this paradigm that we've been teaching uh, you know, dental students and dentists uh, probably for the last 40 or 50 years uh, may need to be updated. Um, so Ala um, uh, actually, uh, you know, got so interested in cystic fibrosis, she actually worked on, uh, on the saliva study as a master's student. She wanted to, to expand the work um, and look at gum disease in individuals with, uh, with CF uh, in, in adults. So what she did as part of her uh, dissertation is that she so far has enrolled 32 adults with CF between the ages of 22 and 63. And this is actually through the adult uh, CF clinic. 
uh, at the University of Washington Medical Center. And so far, what she's, what she's found is that about 30% of individuals in her study uh, presented with moderate gum disease or periodontitis. And, uh, and, and no one so far has, has presented with severe gum disease. And I just wanted to put this model up here and share this model with you to show uh, all the different hypotheses um, that she's testing. And so she's gonna be um, working on this. And actually she's, she's defended, she has her PhD now. And uh, most of this work is, is actually, um, uh, ha has been submitted for publication. Uh, so, so stay tuned. There's a lot, lot of uh, interesting work that's gonna be coming out of Allah's uh, dissertation. Uh, in terms of future research, uh, lots of uh, work in progress areas, uh, again, offshoots of our, of our pilot work with children, uh, as well as new work that, that we hope to propose here in the future. Uh, one of the big things, back to the, uh, the idea that chronic antibiotics uh, you know, are the reason why individuals with uh, CF don't have cavities, uh, we, we, we're sitting on a mound of medication data. And, uh, and, and one of the studies that we hope to do with the child data that we have is to look at the role of CF medications in cavities, uh, to look at the frequency, uh, duration of intake, route of intake, um, other types of uh, features of medications like adherence, um, to look at this. And, and you know, this, this role of medications is, is so complicated. Um, I think it's, um, we spent a lot of time actually collecting pretty um, fine-tuned, very, very detailed data on medications. And, uh, and, and the fact that we have cavity data as well, and there was lots of variation among the kids with, um, in terms of both cavities as well as medication um, intake. We're, we're hoping to clarify uh, the role of medications and cavity risk in, uh, in children and teens with CF. The other, uh, I think, interesting arm is, uh, is, what, is uh, what are the protective mechanisms uh, present for children with CF? So contrary to this, this general um, paradigm that all individuals with CF are at low risk for tooth decay and other oral diseases. Uh, our data actually do seem to support this idea that children with CF do seem to be protected. And, uh, and I think that that's a really important question as to why, you know, what is it about children with CF um, that seems to protect them from, from getting cavities? Uh, is it behavioral? You know, one of the possible hypotheses is that, uh, that the caretakers of children with CF just may be on top of um, health behaviors like diet as well as toothbrushing, getting their children to the dentist. Um, it could be behavioral, uh, but it also could be uh, biological. There could be different um, uh, microbiology happening in the lungs, uh, which might impact the type of medications and antibiotics they take, um, which again can protect children. And there is some evidence again with children uh, in, in, the, in the medical uh, literature about uh, microbiological shifts that happen uh, during early adolescence between children and teens with cystic fibrosis. And, and if there is a microbiological shift happening um, in the lungs that then prompts different types of antibiotics uh, to, to take place, um, you know, that could also influence the microflora um, of the mouth. And so all sorts of really interesting hypotheses um, to test with, uh, with these younger children with, with CF. And, and we have a couple of proposals right now uh, where we're trying to get some of this uh, child CF work uh, uh, funded. Um, and then uh, the, the other piece, and this is actually related to, uh, to our uh, current NIH-funded study. I have a, a graduate student, um, Jenna Castillo, who is a PhD in sociology. Uh, she's in the PhD program in sociology at the UW. Uh, she's interested in uh, medical advice uh, given by CF care team members. And what she's proposed is, uh, is looking at um, the CF care team, so this would be at children's hospitals, um, to, to look at what type of oral health-related advice that CF care team members are giving uh, children and families. And so this would be uh, dietitians, uh, as well as pulmonologists, nurse, and social workers. Uh, and it's this idea that, um, that down the road, if, if we're going to do interventions aimed at improving the oral health of individuals with CF, CF care team members are, are going to be critical members of, of any kind of uh, oral health intervention. And, uh, and it's going to be really important to make sure that, that the dental folks, as well as the non-dental health folks, that we're all on the same page when it comes to the type of oral health-related advice that we give. So an example of this 
might be, um, you know, a, a child with CF, you know, a, a, a CF care team has concerns about the child not gaining weight. So, uh, so the, the priority, understandably, is, is to get that child to put some weight on. Um, and so one of the things that, that might happen is that um, the child might be encouraged to, to just eat, eat whatever it, it takes, you know, high calorie foods, uh, sodas, you know, which can help to, to, to put pounds on, uh, just basically whatever it takes to, to gain weight. Now, from a, a dentistry standpoint, um, what, what that then creates um, is a scenario where those sugars from, from all those foods can, can create oral health problems. Uh, and, uh, and in the olden days, you know, when life expectancy was, was 20, 21 years of age, you know, maybe it didn't matter as much that the teeth had to, uh, had to hold up during the course of, of, of one's life. But we know now that, that CF life expectancy um, has reached or has surpassed uh, 50 in most places. And so it becomes even more important that, uh, that people are able to keep their teeth uh, uh, during, during the entire course of life. And, and really it becomes an oral health related quality of life issue. Uh, it becomes a general quality of life issue of, of being able to retain your teeth, being able to enjoy uh, being able to chew your foods and not having pain in your teeth because of cavities or gum disease. Um, so this idea that, um, that, that I think there's going to be a paradigm shift, um, I, I think it's starting to happen now with some of the studies that we've done, but we hope in the future um, to, to be able to do interventions that, that can help um, uh, shift this paradigm even, even further. And a big part of this, like I said, is going to involve CF care team members. So really, uh, really interesting, important um, work that we're really super excited about. So some oral health tips. Okay, so we have all this research mumbo jumbo, and, and I'm, I'm used to um, meeting with uh, CF support groups, meeting with, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, teen groups and, and stuff, you know, individuals with CF, and, and they're always interested in, in kind of, okay, what, what do I do now? The research is what it is, and, and, and Donald, maybe in 20 years, you'll come up with, with, uh, with an intervention strategy that can help to prevent cavities. What do we do in the meantime? And I think this is a valid, important question. So it's pretty easy, you know, and I think for me, I tend to go back to the behaviors. Uh, and, uh, and again, I'm a pediatric dentist. My background is in public health. But really, most of my research focuses on behaviors and how it is that we can help individuals engage in optimal behaviors. Um, and then also, how is it that we can shape or reshape the social context in which these behaviors occur? So when I think about uh, behaviors in terms of uh, dentistry, taking all the research findings that, that, that we've been able to, to amass over the years and then putting on my clinician hat, I think the first important thing is, is making sure that, uh, that dental visits are happening um, regularly. And, and this can be every six months, it can be every 12 months, uh, but that these, these dental visits are happening regularly. Um, uh, you know, I think what this gives uh, dentists an opportunity to do is to provide some oral health monitoring and what we call anticipatory guidance. So this is uh, where we can take a look at the mouth, ask questions about risk factors, and actually provide patients with, with really tailored advice on ideally what they could be doing to lower their tooth decay risk or their gum disease risk. Um, and so I think that this is really important. Now, I know during COVID, it's, it's been tough. A lot of dental offices, uh, you know, haven't been open regularly uh, with all the PPE, new PPE requirements and distancing requirements, testing requirements in a lot of places. Uh, dental visits can be really hard to get. And there's also just a lot of nervousness about the dental office. Uh, being a source of, of COVID infection. Uh, surprisingly, and, and this may be because, you know, dentistry is one of those areas uh, where, where PPE, the personal protective equipment, uh, we, we've had pretty good PPE standards in place uh, ever since the, uh, the HIV AIDS uh, epidemic started, um, where, you know, gloves are obviously are mandatory. Um, we've always used masks, you know, we're, we're now wearing hats and, and other types of protective equipment. So the dental environment, despite the fact that it's probably, uh, you know, um, thought to be an environment, you know, ripe for uh, COVID infection. Actually, there's not a whole lot of evidence out there that the dental office, um, that there's a lot of COVID infection happening in dental offices that actually comply with PPE uh, and clinical standards of, of infection control. 
So, uh, so important to get to the dentist every six to 12 months um, and, and make sure you're going to a dentist where, uh, where, where the dentist and the staff is abiding by, you know, again, by, by you know, where they're using masks, uh, where they're vaccinated. Again, these things are important. Uh, preventive care is also really important. So it's not just the advice that you get from, from the dentist. Um, you know, it's the preventive care, the direct preventive care. Uh, and this can come in the form of sealants. And so sealants are uh, plastic coatings uh, that we put on the grooves of your back teeth, on your molars. And so what those grooves do is that those grooves are natural. We all have grooves on our teeth. Some of us have groovier um, teeth than others. And these grooves actually source as a, uh, they, they serve as a physical source where, where plaque and food can get stuck in them. And that's really how the decay process starts on the grooves of the teeth. So sealants help to block them out. Um, and, uh, and, and these happen, uh, you know, sealants are placed uh, in children, but they can also be placed in adults uh, who are at high risk. Um, and so sealants are, are really important in terms of preventing tooth decay on the chewing surfaces of the teeth. Uh, fluoride is another uh, type of preventive care that dentists routinely provide. And, and as I mentioned before, fluoride is that sticky stuff that's painted on the teeth. Um, some dentists may, may apply a foam or a gel uh, in a tray that kind of sits on your teeth for, for three or four minutes. Uh, but whatever the mode, the fluoride is important. And, and this type of fluoride, uh, uh, biochemically, it's similar to the type of fluoride you get from toothpaste as well as fluoridated water. Uh, but the big difference is, is that the fluoride you get from dentists is, is kind of a, a, a super strength, a, a high um, concentration of fluoride. And this is why it's done under the supervision of a, of a dentist or a hygienist. And so it's, um, it's a really high dose of fluoride that you get just during the time that you visit the dentist. And so uh, fluoride exposure, really, it's a matter of getting fluoride exposure in different ways And the fluoride that you get at the dentist's office is important in that way. I think the other thing that's really important is that having a dentist, uh, having what's called a dental home or a place to go to for regular dental care um, is important because it's a, it's a source of emergency care. So let's say you fracture a tooth or you get a toothache, you know, on the weekend, um, you know, having a, uh, a place that you can go to for dental care um, also means that when there's an emergency, you have a place to go to, which means that you can stay out of emergency rooms. Um, you can um, just have a, a source of care if, uh, if you need. And, and so that's really important. Uh, in terms of other behaviors, I think reducing added sugars is, is another really important behavior. And we know that sugar intake actually is, is probably the most single most important behavior um, implicated in tooth decay. And so if an individual actually stopped eating sugar, um, their risk for tooth decay probably would plummet almost close to zero. Um, it, it's the added sugars in things like sugar-sweetened beverages, um, candies, uh, the refined sugars that we eat um, that really are, are problematic. And, and there's been a shift. I think historically, you know, we, we, we would think about um, you know, cutting sugar from your diet as, as cutting candies and, and, and gummies out of your diet. And, and those things do cause tooth decay. Uh, but what's really happened, I think, over the past maybe 10 or 15 years, especially with children, but, but adults as well, is that, um, is that, that sugar exposure is coming mostly in the form of sugar-sweetened beverages. So sodas, uh, juices like Tang, Kool-Aid, um, th those are really problematic in terms, of, uh, in terms of really elevating one's risk for tooth decay. So trying to find ways of reducing um, added sugar intake is, is going to be important. Uh, and then back to this issue of fluoride, you know, again, fluoride is important. It comes in different modalities. So, uh, so kind of on an everyday, multiple times a day, um, you know, basis, uh, water fluoridation is important. So the amount of fluoride um, in the water, which is 0.7 to 1.2 parts per million, um, it, it's a tiny amount of fluoride, but study after study we know shows that, uh, that water fluoridation is really super important in terms of protecting the teeth from getting cavities. At the next level, then, is toothpaste. Um, so toothpaste um, has slightly, uh, a slightly higher concentration of fluoride in it. And toothpaste is something that we use typically two times a day. Um, and so, um, so toothpaste uh, is, is that extra kind of protection that we can get um, a couple times a day. Um, and, and so it kind of ups the, uh, the amount of, of fluoride. Um, and so that, again, is safe and, and important. Now, for individuals who are at increased risk for tooth decay, and this is really where I think um, 
goes back to that first point of, of talking to your dentist about your tooth decay risk. Um, there are other fluorides that you can add into your uh, routine in addition to fluoride toothpaste. Um, these include rinses. So fluoride rinses like ACT, you can get these at the grocery store, but there also are um, prescription uh, strength fluoride rinses that are available. Um, and then supplements. So these are the things that um, for those of you who um, who grew up during a time where fluoride supplements were, were handed out routinely. Um, so we still have them. Um, so these are either chewable tablets that, um, that you get from, uh, from the pharmacy or they can be drops that you put in your water. And so this is again, another source of fluoride. And, uh, and in terms of the recommendations for supplements, supplements are, are really recommended for individuals who live in areas where the water is not fluoridated. So if you're in a non-fluoridated area, um, we do recommend uh, supplements, either in the form of uh, chewable tablets or drops that you can put in uh, in your water. Uh, and then dentists are, are also a, a source of fluoride. So you can get the, the fluoride varnish or the gels or foams uh, from, your, from your dentist during uh, routine checkups. And with that, I, I wanted to leave more time for, uh, for discussion and, and any questions that might be out there. So again, I wanna thank you. I wanna thank uh, CFRI for this invitation and for our funders, uh, Sunstar, as well as the CF Foundation and, uh, and NIH. And so thank you so much for your attention and, and I'm happy to, to take any questions or, or discussion points. Dr. Chi, thank you very, very much. And you did span the uh, childhood to adult uh, issue with dental health. And I know this is an issue that impacts many people. So thank you for sharing your time and expertise. How exciting about the NIH study. That's just such a huge marker. So the questions are um, rolling in. The ones I can start off with, how do you find out if your water is fluoridated where you live? Yeah, that is a wonderful question. So a lot of this uh, data is actually publicly available. So you can, uh, if you're on a public water source, you can actually Google it. So uh, find out where your water is coming from. Uh, and so I think there are search engines. So here in Washington, we have the, the Washington State Department of Health uh, maintains a pretty um, accurate up-to-date um, water district um, thing where you can put your address in and, uh, and it'll spit out information, you know, on whether your particular source of water is fluoridated. Now, for those of you who are not on a public water source or may have like well water, um, there are sources that you can uh, turn to. Um, again, a lot of uh, state department of health, uh, state departments of health, they may have uh, testing available where you can send in samples to get your water uh, tested. Uh, so that's one possibility. Um, and so I think that it's important, again, if you're on public water, uh, public you know, sources of water, it, it's easy to find out if you're on fluoridated water. Uh, it, and if not, it's really important to get tested. And well water, we find the literature shows well water can range from zero to a lot of fluoride. So, so the well water really can vary. And so, so it's really important to know. Uh, and the reason why that's important to know is that um, if your well water contained too much fluoride, again, it, it's all about getting the right amount, right? Um, and, and my whole thing about fluoride is, is it, regardless of your source of water here in the US, um, you know, you're not going to get the type of fluorosis that you might get in other countries, you know, places outside the US, um, some of the water sources actually have a type uh, that have uh, concentrates of fluoride uh, that can lead to um, tooth defects and other problems, skeletal problems. Uh, we, we don't have that problem here in the US, but you can get more than you need. And there are filters that are available that, that will actually filter fluoride out. So my whole thing is, you know what, get the right amount, you know, not, you know, not too much, not too little, get the right amount. And, and that's why it's important to know. Goldilocks of dental health. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so next question, do certain CF medications have lesser known side effects affecting oral health like albuterol? Yeah, you know, that's a really great question about medication. So what we know, and this is actually um, information that we know from kind of the general literature, uh, medications are, are problematic for, for two particular reasons. Uh, one, this is related to the sugar piece, is that a lot of times medications don't taste good. So, so there will be things that are put into the medication to make it taste better. So for kids, that may be a sugar 
um, carrier. And so, you know, kid doesn't like, you know, something that tastes bitter, you add some syrup into it. And so then it tastes, you know, like cherry, you know, Kool-Aid and it's sweet. So that can cause problems from, from a, a, again, a sugar standpoint, especially if that individual is getting a lot of sugar exposure from their diet as well. And then also not brushing and not getting the fluoride that they need. So I think that's the, that's the first area of concern when it comes to medications. Um, the second area really is, uh, is, is related to the dry mouth. So, so a lot of medications um, can actually lead to physical dry mouth. They can actually affect the salivary glands where you actually don't, where you stop producing saliva or your, or your salivary production uh, goes down really low. And saliva is one of those things that, um, that is, is actually really important. It helps to buffer the acids in the mouth, uh, but it also helps to actually protect the teeth. It, it, it actually has um, uh, enzymes and, and there are things in saliva um, that will actually physically protect the teeth. Um, and so every time you have, um, you know, every time you eat something sugary, you know, that's going to damage the teeth. The saliva actually helps to, to neutralize some of that damage that happens. And so if you introduce a medication uh, that leads to um, alter, uh, alterations in, in, in saliva, um, that can be really problematic. So really, it, it's those two things. So, so you want to check, uh, regardless of kind of what medications you're on, um, you want to look at the, um, the medication list to see, again, is, is there sugar? Um, being added to it, or, or is there sugar part of it? And, and is there maybe an alternative, maybe a sugar-free carrier that can be used for medications? And then secondly, um, is it causing dry mouth? And dry mouth is one of those things I think most people, um, they know if you ask about it, you know, it, it's kind of hard to kind of measure, you know, so if you don't, ha you know, if you, if someone asks you about dry mouth, and you're like, well, I don't know if I have dry mouth, oftentimes the person's fine, you know, their, their mouth is perfectly fine. But, but again, there are inventories um, out there where, where you can take, you know, a 10 item inventory to see if, if you do have, uh, or if you're ha at risk for xerostomia. Um, and that, that would be a, a source of, of, of tooth decay risk. Uh, somebody's curious about why the study is cut off at 30 years old. Yeah, that's a really great, great question. Again, the, these are the tiny little things that, you know, when, when you put a grant together, they, they just kind of seem arbitrary, but there was a lot of conversation about when you start, when you cut off. And the reason for that is actually age, age 30 is when we start to see gum disease, periodontitis in adults. So individuals under age 30, uh, rarely do we see periodontal disease. So periodontal disease is actually different from gingivitis. Gingivitis is where um, basically, you know, if, if, you, if you stop brushing for a few days, or maybe if you stop flossing for a few days, you might notice that your gums bleed. That's gingivitis. It's reversible. If you start brushing again, if you start flossing again, um, the gingivitis, uh, it, it's caused by bacteria, basically, that, that sit on your teeth and, and, and your gums. And so, you know, the bleeding is, is a sign of inflammation. Uh, gingivitis is reversible. Uh, periodontal disease is not. So periodontal disease is actually, it's, it's similar uh, in that there are uh, bacteria involved. And so bacteria kind of collect and accumulate. But what happens is that the bacteria, kind of a layman's way of understanding gum disease, is that the bacteria in the mouth essentially melt the, uh, the jawbone in the mouth. And so as you can imagine, if that jawbone melts over time, this is why gum disease leads to tooth loss over time. That bone, the jawbone is what keeps the teeth um, anchored in the jaw. And so if you have uh, what's called the alveolar bone uh, shrinking over time or melting over time because of the bacteria, um, that's when you get pockets. So you may know when you go to the dentist, you know, when they probe you with that really uncomfortable sharp thing, <laughs> And they then they shout out a whole bunch of numbers, you know, twos, threes, sixes, you know, twos and threes are good. You know, if you're in the two and three realm, you know, that, that's good. Fours, you're starting to kind of see, um, you know, bone loss. Uh, five, sixes, sevens, eights, that's when you actually are starting to see severe bone loss. And so you don't actually start seeing periodontal disease until age 30. And we, we just, based on our pilot data, we just didn't have enough data to, uh, to demonstrate um, a need to look at periodontal disease in CF, uh, but this doesn't mean that it's not important. And actually that's probably another important area. And this is really where Allah's work I think is, is really uh, phenomenally important. Um, we, we have some more knowledge about children, but I mean, it, it's virtually, I mean, we, we, there's so much we don't know about adults with CF and oral health. So lots of opportunities. And we're glad you're pursuing this. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Somebody said, post-transplant, I developed extreme sensitivities to cold on one side of my teeth. My dentist thinks it could be lack of fluoride. Any thoughts? 
Interesting. Just one side. That's interesting. You know, it could be, I don't know if on that one side, maybe there were some restorations um, present, you know, and it could be that, um, that, you know, that those restorations might be differentially affected again by different changes that happen post-transplant. Again, going back to the medication issue, um, if you have, um, if you have medications that, that lead to dry mouth, uh, especially with post-transplant medications, um, you can have uh, gingival overgrowth. So that's where the gingiva or the gums swell up and actually can cover the teeth. Um, so you can have some local changes that happen. Um, and so, yeah, I, th I think that that is possible. And um, yeah, that, that's, yeah. Is the study available to those who are willing to travel to one of the study centers mentioned? Uh, the, uh, yes, uh, so actually, I think, uh, you know, I, I think actually, well, I think the individuals, uh, they have to be patients of record at, at the three sites. Um, and so if, if, uh, if you've kind of fall within that um, age range and you're a patient of record, um, then yeah, that, that would be totally possible. And the reason for that is it, it does involve multiple visits. And so what we try to do with our, our study visits for our NIH study is to combine them with, um, with clinical visits. So that way, you know, you're not having to come back again just for the study. Um, but, uh, but yeah, you know, one of the things is that there's always, you know, we're always looking for, uh, for partners and potential collaborators. So if there is a CF um, care site near where you are, uh, please mention, mention, you know, share, uh, you know, your interest and, and we're always looking for partner sites. And so, um, so this could be a way for us to actually start a new collaboration. Uh, and as I mentioned, you know, we, uh, you know, I, I could probably come up with 12 important studies. And so all of these studies would require sites. Um, so we're always looking for partners. And is the study listed on clinicaltrials.gov? Uh, it should be. Uh, well, actually, no, this is not a clinical trial, so it, no, it, it will not be in okay. clinical trials. But, uh, but if you go to my website, um, there, there should be kind of an explanation for the study. Um, yep, and it should be. And it's actually on the NIH website. So the NIH website has a, um, a collection of all the studies that are funded now. Perfect. And we will share more information about this. Um, let's see. Do oh, This is from our CF researcher. Do individuals with CF have a different oral uh, microbiome? That's a great question, and the, the simple answer is we don't know. So, so really, this this study will be one of the one of the first to, to really systematically look at at this issue. Um, we we won't have um, we won't have non CF controls. So, so again, the question you know oftentimes comes: Okay, what what is the CF microbiome uh, compared to the non CF microbiome of the mouth? And I think for us, we again, this is one of those um, really important kind of study design questions that that we really wanted to um, that 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 we really you know struggled with at first, is 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 really are we comparing CF to non-CF or are we trying to find pockets of high risk within CF? And and I think it really is the latter that we landed on. Um, I think there are some really important basic. Um, maybe microbiological basic science questions related to CF versus non-CF. But I think when it comes to kind of the dentist in me and the interventionist in me, you know, we know that CF, you know, generally speaking, you know, that, that there are going to be pockets or subgroups within CF that are higher risk. And so those are really the, the, the subgroups we really want to target, especially knowing that, uh, that individuals with CF, you know, have medical vulnerabilities, you know, that they're, they're categorically at greater risk for, for infection. And so our idea is that, okay, so given this medical complexity and vulnerability, what can we do to identify those individuals who are in greatest need of interventions? And we are uh, only have a few minutes left, if you don't mind just going over a couple. And then everybody whose questions we don't get to, I'm, I'm thinking we're gonna come back for the podcast. Great, <laughs> yeah, happy to. <laughs> um, so we had a lot of people commented because of medications they have taken through childhood, they have the discoloration of the teeth, which is a quality of life issue. Um, and so they wanna know, do you have any advice about this? Yeah, absolutely. I, I imagine, um, you know, so tetracycline, you know, uh, you know, if, if, if you were young and your teeth were developing and you took tetracycline, yeah, your teeth are probably gray um, and, and discolored. And, and that's something that can't be scratched off. You know, anything extrinsic can be scratched off, but tetracycline staining is, is intrinsic. Uh, one of the things that you can do is, is see your dentist about getting uh, veneers. Uh, now, again, they're not cheap. Veneers are, are you know, they're, they're very expensive. Uh, but oftentimes, you know, you can get six veneers kind of canine to canine. You don't have to do all your teeth, but you can do kind of the, the canine to canine veneers to, to cover that. And veneers will cover um, that. You can also do full coverage crowns. 
Um, but yeah, um, you know, medications can lead to that. And unfortunately, uh, we, we do know more now where, where you know, we, we try to, to, to not prescribe those medications knowing that that causes uh, dental problems. And as a public health person, you just must hate how little coverage there is for dental services. Yeah, yeah, especially for adults. I mean, you know, the adult. I mean, this is a, especially for you know um, adults who maybe may be eligible for Medicaid. You know, the, the Medicaid adult dental coverage is is really spotty. It kind of depends on what state you live in. Uh, and then with Medicare, it's similar. You know, there, there's even less coverage for for older adults. Um, children are, are covered pretty well, um, and and so you know we do have some some good coverage in terms of uh, Medicaid and children. The problem with Medicaid uh, with with children is that the reimbursement rates oftentimes aren't very high, and so dentists won't participate. So it's it's hard to find a provider, or it can be hard to find a provider. Um, so yeah, lots of kind of health policy problems that that the folks in this room are probably familiar with that that are kind of rampant and dentistry. And somebody actually asked if you know whether in countries where these services are covered through a national health care system, is there a different rate of cavities and typically the CF, the general population? That's a really good question. You know, I think that countries that tend to have uh, universal, you know, coverage in terms of dentistry, and, and actually, it, it's it's not necessarily, you know, if a country has universal health care, they don't necessarily always have dental as part of that. So that's the other piece. But if, you know, a country that has uh, universal healthcare that covers universal dental. Oftentimes, those countries are are, are just kind of health focused, and so we, we can't necessarily say that it was the universal coverage that that leads to better dental health. But they're just better positioned to to have a more healthy population. So yes, so the, the answer is yes. Now, is it related to the universal coverage? That that we don't know. <laughs> I'm going to ask one last one, even though we're over, because it's a quick sure. answer. Sure. Do you recommend using water picks? And if so, do you suggest any additives such as bleach? Um, no bleach. I, I would not add bleach to your to your water pick, but water picks are good because um, you know, often so flossing, and you should still floss. Floss catches everything in between the teeth. Water picks cut, uh, can can kind of clean out pockets underneath where you floss and can kind of clean debris out that floss or toothbrushes can't get out. So yeah, so I think water picks are great. And actually there is some good research out there to show that water picks work, but they should not be done in lieu of brushing and flossing. You should still do 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 all three, but yes, but and, and don't add bleach. <laughs> to yeah. don't add bleach <laughs> and should people be doing this before or after treatments after um it, that doesn't matter i think uh, i think it's, it's fine yeah after or before uh, is is just fine well i have to end this now and i know we have questions and what i didn't share uh before was that uh, Stacy Ravellis, who works for CFRI, she was planning a podcast on CF and dental health and found through an article, Dr. Chi. So we connected to talk about this podcast, but it was such an engaging discussion and there was so much to share that we were immediately, no, you must come to the conference. So <laughs> now we're going to follow up and we will do a post-conference podcast with Dr. Chi if he agrees and we will address, we'll keep a record of all these questions and make sure that they are all addressed and hopefully if your schedule permits, we'll do this. I'd love to do it anytime, anytime, Siri. <laughs> thank you so much for sharing your time and your expertise with us. We are really, really grateful to you. And uh, for everybody who stayed with us, we hope you learned a great deal. I'm sure you did. I did. Um, and so this will conclude this session. And then we will meet again um, in about, I think, 10 minutes or so with an amazing panel on the impact of CF upon the siblings. So you won't want to miss that. And I will see everybody at the next session. Dr. Chi, thank you again. Thanks so much, Siri. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>